From the Earwolf Studios in Hollywood, California, this is North Mollywood. I'm Alex Papadimus. I have Thetans in my throat. Our guests in the studio today from Yo Is This Racist and this room, Andrew T. It's my room, dogs. And known for 10,000 years as the Sea Punk of the Sea Org, Molly Lambert. When they go low, we go clear. <laughs> We're talking to Louis Theroux today. He has a new movie in theaters or at, at the cinema, uh, as he points out, that they call it in England. It's called My Scientology Movie. It's crazy. It involves him basically acting as a lightning rod and bringing the wrath of the COS down upon him in order to uh, better understand them. And it's it's nuts. Uh, guys, you guys watch this movie as well. Yeah. yeah, it's great. He talks to some ex-Scientologists, mainly to Marty Rathburn, who was... Uh, Rathbun. No Rathbun. R. He's like the Berenstain Bears that was just the British. of words. The Britishness. Uh, Marty was, uh, it turns out, kind of an enforcer in uh, the Church of Scientology at the Gold Base, which is yeah. the secret desert base that does not <laughs> theoretically exist, but do- definitely does exist. Well, it's also like, comi- like, like as far as like Scientology documentaries go, the the this one with the funniest, the mo- the funniest one, Scientology documentary. Yeah. Like the whole, I think this is in the trailer, so it's not a huge spoiler, but there's a whole subplot where he's casting people to be in a reenactment of cl- like key Scientology scenes that are hilarious. That the is whole thing hilarious. Is so good. There is, uh, they cast a David Miscavige who is terrifying. Yeah, that guy, intense. He really nails the the frighteningness of the real guy. Well, that's what's going on in that scene when he's trying to get, when Rathburn is like, no, this guy's not scary enough. And he's like, that guy, like who is literally just seems like, like a young Randall flag or something. Like yeah. it's just a real intense dude. He also casts some Tom Cruises. Cast Tom Cruises, many of whom are very Tom Cruisey. Yeah. It's actually a little eerie how many people look Exactly like Tom Cruise. Well, it also is a very good example of how many people might move to Los Angeles and be like, hey, I look like Tom Cruise. If I want to be Tom Cruise, I need to join the Church of Scientology. Molly, you're being glib. (laughs) (laughs) We are very excited to welcome Louis Theroux to North Mollywood today. Um, When I did this intro the first time, I referred to him as the director of dozens of films, which is uh, technically untrue. He is a presenter in this capacity. and he will explain uh, the distinction as we begin our interview with Lou Theroux. Yeah, you got schooled, man. You got taken to public school. Taking By the a, best. Taking a BBC school. <laughs> yeah, I should jump in because I, I, I would love to have directed this film. But in fact, I'm the presenter and writer of it. And John Dow was the director. And on the off chance that he hears this <laughs> and hears me acquiesce in your description of me as the director, I think I should probably uh, pick that up. Sure. We can uh, re-record the intro at the end. Oh, no, we would need a record of our failures. Is, th- <laughs> is that a, a different position for you to be in vis-a-vis this? Like a- I don't really direct. I mean, I, I, I have a kind of interesting, uh, slightly sort of um, different way of doing my documentaries. I mean, I'm, I'm an author of them in one sense. You know, you definitely, they follow me in, as I insert myself into different, kind. you know, into offbeat, arcane, controversial worlds. And over the years, I've done many on TV, including on things like neo-Nazis or the Westboro Baptist Church or gangster rap or the porn industry. But I have directors that I work with. So in in some ways, there's a little bit of um, sleight of hand that goes on. So while I appear to be the sole author and kind of lightning rod for everything that's happening on screen, there is a team behind the camera, and, and, and that includes 
usually director, uh, obviously sound recordist, and then there's the editor, of course. And my Scientology movie, which is my first foray into the big screen, a, a kind of long-term dream project investigating Scientology, I was assigned John Dower, who's a terrific guy, can't be here, but he was the director on that one. And you hear, he, he pops up very briefly and occasionally in the film, you can hear his voice. But I try, one of the things going into the film that, you know, Scientology is well known for, um, among other things, uh, like Tom Cruise, it's well known for hitting back at its perceived critics, right? And that was one of the reasons I got involved with uh, covering the church. I always found the idea of a religion that m took it as its watchword, uh, the concept of fighting back and confronting its critics and even tailing them, harassing them, and to use L. Ron Hubbard's term, uh, to utterly destroy people that it viewed as what it called suppressive. I found that really kind of amazing and interesting. And so uh, in making the film, I knew there was a good chance, I hoped they would kind of come after me. And so my job in presenting the film, among other things, was to sort of uh, be the buffer and experiencer of all that negativity, the hostility. When people come out, when the Scientologists come out and 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 sort of confront me and say, um, you know, leave now. Why are you filming our church? You know, stop bothering us. You know, you're trespassing. Then I I, I just had to sort of. It was my job to say, um, you know, I'm not trespassing. It's a public road. We're just taking shots. You know, as is our First Amendment right mm -hmm. uh, to be here. And so, uh, please kindly desist from raising your voice and let's have a cordial conversation. I feel like they were very confused by how polite. You were being. The idea was to try and do that. You know, I often think about um, this, you know, Nietzsche's most quoted aphorism is that, uh, that he who fights monsters must beware that he does not become a monster. And, you know, it's very easy to slip into this mirroring approach. And when someone's shouting at you, you feel this, without even thinking it, this compulsion to shout back. And then you get emotional. And, you know, in battling someone who comes at you with a sword, well, then it makes sense to use a sword back, right? But then there becomes this moment where you think, hang on, am I any different from them? How am I not just, if I think what they're doing is wrong, aren't I just doing more or less the same thing back? So I did try to, I, I tried to resist getting into this us and them posture, which is, um, I think also something that a lot of the documentaries about Scientology that have been made hitherto, can sometimes fall into because, mm -hmm. because Scientologists um, do carry on in such an odd way in many cases that it's, it's very easy to just sort of uh, fail to attempt to make any rapport with them, you know? Yeah, I liked how you kept kind of saying like, no, I want you to tell me, I want you to explain. They pop up and they're like filming us and in some cases hurling abuse, not so much at me, but as at my contributors, the, the guys I'm with who are, the main one is Marty Rathbun, a very prominent ex-Scientologist who was the Inspector General at one time, a very senior position in Scientology, and then left and speaks out against the alleged abuses inside Scientology. So they pop up, these ex-Scientologists, sorry, the active Scientologists mm -hmm. pop up and start filming us. And um, in order to kind of upset and unsettle me, but more specifically, Marty. And so I just would, I, for me, obviously, it was exciting. And I, and I sort of thought, wow, this is, okay, yes, it's pretty weird, but it's also an, an opportunity to talk to a Scientologist. And I just wanted to keep the conversation going. So I would say, you know, stick around. This is good. This is dialogue. You know, mm -hmm. this is this is how we start the conversation. And 
And and then, I, but I became aware for them, I was a kind of contagion. You know, they saw me in Scientology. One of the many interesting things is they view someone who is, um, as they view it, suppressive. Um, they view you not just as an enemy, but as a, almost like a potential threat to them existentially, because you are suppressive. But that by being connected to you, they run the risk of becoming a PTS, a potential trouble source. So they have to handle me without in any way kind of connecting with me. So there's no dialogue. They just sort of put up a wall of, of L. Ron Hubbard-inspired rhetoric. We're going to go tend to our body thetans. We'll be back with more Louis Theroux. Did you do a lot of research before making the film? You know, I'm a kind of geek about Scientology. And and uh, even before I worked in TV and made documentaries, going back to the, my late teens, I was fascinated by it. I remember, you know, as a sort of recreational thing, when I visited LA the second time I came here, when I was about 21, I walked around Hollywood and then I saw the L. Ron Hubbard Life Exhibit. I think it's on Hollywood Boulevard. And I thought, oh, wow, it's that weird religion that I've read about. And and I and I took a tour of it just as a um, as a way of experiencing it. And so over the years, I've I've read most of the books that have come out about it, and always for years nurtured this dream of of being able to make a documentary about it. Uh, it seems like on your specials, uh, you do a lot of sort of going into subcultures and trying to get absorbed as much as possible without yes. getting fully absorbed. Were you at all afraid that you would just completely? Go Fall native, yeah. yeah. I mean, the Stockholm syndrome is the is a sort of the apt analogy, and I always think that a little bit of that is actually kind of helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, in order to inhabit, you know, I suppose it creates empathy in a sense. I never found the idea of the Stockholm syndrome, the idea that you would identify with your captors, as especially counterintuitive, because I think proximity to people, by and large, does um, engender a kind of um, relationship. You know, you, you're just being around someone. You know, I meant, I once made a um, program about big game hunting in, in South Africa. This was before Cecil the Lion and, and Walter the Dentist, if you remember that. And one of the striking things for me was always that actually in the world of big game hunting, where, where they have what they call game farms and the game are within fenced enclosures, although the enclosures are very big, many, many, many acres. So the, the farmers who run the farms, do, they hunt, but they won't hunt their own animals. To me, it spoke of how actually if you care for someone, if you, care, if you spend time with creatures putting out food, nursing them back from sickness over the winter when they're not well, then it, there's, there's no real desire. Even if you enjoy hunting, you don't want to hunt your own animals. It, it kind of is a, you're short-circuiting some basic human instinct. And by the same token, when you're with people, you really do start to feel uh, a kind of affection for them while continuing to kind of see what they're doing as being really wrong. So when I spent three weeks uh, with the Westboro Baptist Church, it's amazing how on kind of day one, the placards seem hideous like and really just upsetting to look at. But on day 10, the placards seem kind of almost normal, you know, or, 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 or rationally, you can see that how wrong-headed they are, but you just told, you're desensitized. The group dynamic just takes over. You just there's some kind of tribal, some basic neurocircuitry that says you know you just get along with the people that you should get along with. You know, I, I've done a documentary. I've done documentaries in prisons. I did one in San Quentin prison and, and one in Miami jail. And I was struck in San Quentin how 
there's a kind of um, a degree of a like a what struck me wasn't the the conflict between the guards and the inmates. It was the almost the bizarre form of affection that existed between them. How much the guards enjoyed uh, the inmates that you know how they enjoyed the soap opera of how they uh, interacted, the humor that they used. You know, it, they're, they're little ecosystems of, of uh, human tribalism. Now, with Scientology, there's a difference. They didn't let me in in any normal sense. So I there was no danger of going native in Scientology because um, I wasn't immersed in the Sea Org, right, mm -hmm. or in the Int base, their secret base outside Hemet in the desert. Uh, I was very much kept away. You know, they they wanted me to go away. I was in. I, if anything, I was immersed in the world of the ex Scientologists, specifically Marty Rathbun, but some others as well. So the danger there is that you go native with a kind of anti Scientology, mm -hmm. and that you surrender your critical faculties and fail to interrogate the ex Scientology version of events, which, like everything else, is fallible and, and to some extent, uh, one sided. So for me, the job in doing this movie was to um, keep seeing Scientology as, um, well, Scientologists as people with human, you know, qualities, mm -hmm. human faces, and not, and not get into that whole um, anti-cult mindset. I liked how it kind of became a buddy comedy about you and Thank Martin. you. <laughs> I agree, and I liked that too. And it's, it's all about flavors of a road movie and then a kind of buddy comedy where... The, and I think he'd be played by uh, Bill Murray, possibly. He's got a kind of irascible, older guy, sporting guy who's slightly gone to seed. Uh, he, I think he used to play a lot of basketball. You know, like the coach in Hoosiers. <laughs> yeah. He's got that vibe. And and then I, I don't know who, I don't know quite, I'm not qualified to say what vibe I've got, but I think it's somehow. A Hollywood casting director would say John Oliver, unfortunately. John Oliver, there we go. Sort of bespectacled. We're terrible people. Bespectacled. No, we need shorthand. A bespectacled kind of. The people used to say uh, when I went around San Quentin, they'd go, "It's cheaters," and and um, <laughs> and then someone later said, "Oh, the host of cheaters. Do you know who it is?" Oh yeah, we talk about cheaters on the show. What's the a host's lot? name? Joey Greco. Greco. So they're like, I think they thought. So should we go with Joey Greco? Like, does yeah. he have glasses? No, you look Anyone, nothing like Joey Greco. No, but yeah. Joey Greco is absolutely the sort of more like you know uh, sort of dashing guy that they would hire to like to play. You, you know, right. just to be in there. So it was a, it's a Joey Greco slash John Oliver <laughs> with Bill Murray slash Dennis Hopper in Hoosiers. And and then and and, and uh we, we we quite clearly uh there's a sort of undernote of, of of affection, but also he finds me increasingly annoying mm -hmm. and 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 doesn't hesitate to kind of let me know how annoying he's... In fact, I said to him at one point, I said, do you find my questions annoying? That's such a funny part. Of and then he just sort of... Um, there's a really long pause where he's sort of thinking about how annoying he finds me. I mean, there's several silences. And also he's so... One of the things that Scientology teaches is a sort of... as a quality of self-possession and assertiveness mm -hmm. where I think, like... I was really struck by how much of it is about owning your social space, right? So that if someone, so, you know, which is a hugely influential social technique, if you think about it, you can walk into a room and, and not allow yourself to use, to, to, to be controlled or influenced by other people's physical and social cues, right? So you keep total, which is really unnerving, like eye contact, there's so many people I can't keep eye contact with everyone. <laughs> but, and then, and then you, you just sort of allow that sense of discipline 
to, to impart your, you know, a sense of social authority. But one of the things I often do in my, my documentaries is also try and own my space in the sense of allowing silences to play out. So then there's these standoffs in which no one speaks and there's this slightly awkward feeling like, God, someone please say something, you know? <laughs> That's a good way to do an interview. It does feel like, um, I always think, you know, when you arrive at some moment of insight with someone, um, then, then just wait until what they say. You know, what they say next may not be interesting, but there's a chance it, it will be. We're going to continue this conversation after this break. Really sense the people at the gold base did not know how to respond because they're so used to being just aggressive and scaring people. And, well, and, and receiving confrontation in return, as, as you were saying. I hope that's know. true. I mean, I don't know that I made any... The woman who came out and handled me at the base twice was called Catherine Fraser. Mm -hmm. And I, I also, during filming, we, we interview her... Um, her ex-husband, Jeff Hawkins, who says, you know, at heart, she really is a very nice and good person, but she is, like all, all the people there, she's feeling the pressure and she's ha having to take on this um, personality, you know, this sort of corporate personality because uh, of, her, of her role there. And so you're not seeing the real her. Now, I don't know whether I kind of, I don't think I kind of broke through with her at all, but I, I hope I didn't... Um, let myself down too much, you know, in terms of my own code of, of, of conduct. I'm aware that, you know, one of the reasons they they popped up and filmed me at various junctures when, when we had our lawyers kind of engaged with their lawyers at a stage of the editing and they said, um, well, you know, uh, you know, our clients uh, dispatched documentary crews and people with cameras to film Louis Theroux as is their right because they're making a documentary about Louis <laughs> Theroux. So there, it was a, another great case of mirroring where they were saying, you know, we were filming you. You think that's creepy and weird, but actually how is that different from what you're doing? But no sign yet of their documentary, oddly enough. Are you, you know looking what? forward to it? Yeah, <laughs> we can't wait. <laughs> I used to say that I was looking forward to it and, 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 and when it becomes, and it's kind of funny, the idea of it. And then when it becomes more real, um, it's a little bit, uh, worrying i suppose have you seen their film studio down the street i haven't been into it i don't think anyone can go into it have they done any filming there uh don't know they took over the old pbs studio and turned it into you know and in the videos it looks amazing yeah well their big thing is having these crazy facades and then being like you can't come in unless you're gonna come yeah. do mm -hmm. the you know a course or something yes um so they make it very sort of like inviting they have these big parties where they're like oh we're having a huge gala tonight but like you can only come in if you are willing to, to do a personality test yeah is it i tried to go you know while i was filming i would occasionally off camera and in my own sort of private time uh pop into scientology buildings just to kind of feel the vibe and remind myself that this isn't a faceless mass. Like mm. these are people who round the corner from where I was living at the time in Los Feliz. They are out there, you know, pushing copies of Dianetics and personality tests. And and there was a weird moment when, because um, I had a nice, well, nice isn't the right word, but I had a kind of interesting session at the um, the Los Feliz mission. And then I had I watched an orientation video at Big Blue, the one on Fountain. And then I went into the celebrity center. Well, I didn't go. I, I went up to it to have a kind of sniff around one. Uh, weekend when it's supposed to be open to the public. They used to give out brunch. Didn't give it out, but you could go and have brunch there. And they, they, inter they sort of inter two, a security guard intercepted me and said, you are not welcome. You are not welcome. Leave now. And I thought, wow, that, they, I, they must 
um, have me on some bulletin board in the guardhouse, you know, to recognize yeah. me that quickly. You're on file with them now. I'm on uh, it's file. Like, it's probably like that book that they have at the casinos for card counters, you know? Yeah. It's like you're in there. Everybody who's ever made a Scientology documentary like tried to get close. Like they've got pictures of, you know. They, I feel like they do that to, to civilians though in general. Uh, there's a brunch place across from one of the big centers where they had, um, you know, they were doing some kind of party or something, some gala event. And they just had security guards all over the sidewalk. And the security guards are kind of dressed like movie security yeah. guards. Like it's very very taken from movies. Yes. Um, and they were telling people like, no, you can't be on the sidewalk here. This is like- Kind of like, matrix-y. Very, that's what I was going to say. Extremely- But usually on bikes as well. But they're very yeah. civil. I was walking around there yesterday to, uh, and just to have a kind of gander at the outside and guy on the bike came up. Hey, I'm Mark. How are you doing? You know, just, uh, yeah. can I help? I said, well, not really. I'm just walking around. Okay. And then it's kind of this subtext of like, what are you doing here and please leave, you know, that he was projecting. Yeah. Did they, you, they kind of make an effort to be decent neighbors, though. I, I had a friend who lived one street over from the Scientology Center, and they would, like, you know, just just, just try to be extra nice, you know, face-to-face. Yes. -face. I, I agree, and I think probably 90% of the things that go on in, you know, in, in our local Scientology buildings are either um, kind of relatively benign or or really boring, you know? Mm -hmm. And also, by the way, you know, and if I can, I hope this isn't an outlandish analogy because I was thinking about this last night, but you know, and, and the Islamic State is supposedly has a pretty good health system. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So my point is, is like these groups that uh, uh, fall under suspicion, it's not because everything they do is dreadful. Yeah. You know, and 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 it would be almost weird. Like, no, it's not in anyone's ability to be to do ill or be destructive um, twenty four hours a day. And in fact, the re one of the reasons why there are, I think, um, reason you know, real issues around Scientology that should be exposed and investigated is because of its ability to convince right thinking people and seduce kind of naive people who wish, or even thoughtful. Um, selfless uh, people who wish to do good into their ranks, you know, and that's right. why they stay because they're persuaded that uh, they are good neighbors and they are the most ethical people on the planet and they are the only people who have the answers to all the problems that have plagued mankind. Well, I think you say it a couple times in the documentary, which is that like, you know, they're fighting for their and your eternal soul and the salvation of earth and why not? Mm. Why not break a few eggs? And if you, if that, if those are the stakes, then yeah, absolutely. What, what is, what does it matter if some people are locked in a little building in the heat for a, you know a few weeks? You know, it's small beans compared with the, the millennia-long space opera that they're involved in. <laughs> Did you read any of L. Ron Hubbard's science fiction? No. Have you? Uh... I struggled to, uh, to get halfway through Dianetics. I think most people do. I mean, you, anyone should just. If you think, I just think. It's amazing how turgid Dianetics is and how just weird and un unpersuasive. You know, within a few chapters, he's talking about memories of being uh, an embryo uh, and, 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 and kind of forced ab abortions that fathers are performing upon their wives. You know, it's this really kind of ghoulish uh, his, his vision of what family life is. sci-fi is really turgid too, I feel like, uh, you know, because he was with around a bunch of other L.A. sci-fi writers yes. of that era who became successful. He was part of, of a golden age of sci-fi writing, so I'm told. And 
what the, the, the received wisdom is that there's one called fear that's supposed to be quite good. I'll check that one out. <laughs> he had a sort of style, you know, and a kind of a, a charisma and a way of expressing himself that you can see the appeal of when you watch old footage or hear old lectures. He had a kind of folksy, rough-hewn wisdom. He's sort of reminiscent of almost Orson Welles or one of these sort of raconteurs, one of these world travelers um, from the early half of the of the mid-20th century. So all of that I kind of get. And sometimes when you go into one of these missions, it feels like it's been um, it's been styled by uh, like like a J. Peterman catalog uh, writer. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. So you know how they've got like a rustic old chest with an, 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 an old leather baseball jacket and, a, and an old antique globe, you know, and a brass thing that looks like an old propeller plane. And, and you kind of, it's redolent of you know, the early days of aviation and, and exploring and old maps and, and here be monsters and, and, you know, and all of that's rather appealing. You feel you're embarking on um, a kind of old world adventure, which was, you know, that was the thing he was rocking. But, uh, and, and, and actually, and they're quite, they're very sort of well-appointed. They're not shabby. They're not like a lot of kind of do-gooding outfits where they're working out of a little, um, tiny room, dusty room somewhere. No, they've got lots of money because they own all the real estate. They've got lots of money. And and again, I say in my film that um, one of the draws for me was how impressive their galas are. And the way you've got, you know, for me, who's relatively um, ill-educated on matters of kind of cinematography, I'm like, wow, that's a great, you know, swooping camera moves and everyone in kind of lights. And they sometimes have flaming braziers on stage and it looks sort of Lenny Riefenstahl meets Donald Trump, right? Right. And, and there's gold stuff everywhere. And you think, wow, these guys look like they know how to um, kind of run a show. And, and maybe if, they, if they're that good at doing this, I, you know, I want to be part of that majestic experience. Right. It's like a, you gave a 15-year-old authoritarian an unlimited budget to yes. make whatever you want. Yeah, lots of gold. <laughs> so uh, now that you have fulfilled your lifelong dream of uh, doing a project about Scientology, are there any other um, areas, any other subcultures that you're, you're interested in doing anything about? What would be next? Um, you know, it is, it, it is a, uh, it's a good question. I, I'm working on my day job at the moment, which is doing TV documentaries which are faster turnaround. I usually do about three a year. So I've been doing uh, a three-part series on crime in America. So that's taking up my energies and kind of planning the next thing. I do. I mentioned the Islamic State earlier. I think I missed my window on that, but I definitely, um, I, I, I probably had a chance of, I could have, I suppose I could have gone there. I, that's one where I felt, um, I think I was too afraid to go over there basically pretty reasonable you know what i mean that's fair you know chopping people's heads off and stuff i don't think anyone's gonna fault you for that no one. but i think it's gone now has it if it was been if it rubbed off the existed, map right that's yeah. the question wow was it all Where fiction that, all you think along? it was like a, a like a hologram i think it look <laughs> look I, I watch way too many adam curtis movies and i feel like they're all about like you know did this ever exist was it all fiction wow all yeah. So okay. It's just, like French philosophy, so it's a Jean Baudrillard. It's that. Like it, we are all living in this sort of. Yeah. Nothing is real. It's all mediated through uh, different technologies. That is basically that the log a deep line. Note. I didn't yeah. think we were going to arrive at that point. That's as, that's that's the log line of North Molly. <laughs> right is, is anything real? <laughs> 
Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on our pleasure. show today. My pleasure. My Scientology movie, it's out this Friday. It's in cinemas or theaters, as you call them. And uh, also a video on demand on various platforms. And you can find your BBC documentaries. Some of them are on Netflix. Yeah. I love uh, the gangster rap one. Thank you. you. Go to Master P's house. Yes. The wrestling one is also an old favorite. That's one of your, what, what else are your favorites? Oh, I think the first one I ever did was about survivalists in Idaho and uh, Montana. And I visited Aryan nations, but I also visited a place called Almost Heaven. It was This was in 1997, I think, or six that I made it. And a lot of it uh, is now, you know, not as fringe as it was. You know, oddly enough, some of, the, some of those guys are, uh, you know, back then they were like the American Taliban. They sort of believed in stoning people and they believed that the world was ending and the UN was the enemy. Some of it was fueled by, I don't know about fueled by, but you know, close cousin of Alex Jones mm -hmm. from- um, Infowars. Infowars, yeah. who turns out to be one of Donald Trump's favorite favorite uh, information sources. Yeah. So so we're in this whole new world where-, where um, Where the president believes in lizard people. <laughs> I don't know that he said exactly that, but yes, kind of. But we don't know for sure that he doesn't believe Well, if in you look at the people. things Alex Jones believes in and you assume that he really believes those things, I am always, you know, tend to believe that maybe these people don't believe these things, that they just have realized you can get a lot of attention. But who knows? Maybe he does think that there's a secret underground tunnel system connecting mm. all of America. Maybe there is. What do I know? Who knows? <laughs> Interesting times. But uh, but that was a favorite one. And then I did one. It wasn't a weird weekend. It was a different documentary series I did. But I did two episodes about the Westboro Baptist Church, which I think hold up uh, quite well. And uh, they're not on Netflix, but I think they're on YouTube somewhere. Cool. Good stuff. Check them out. Find them legally, folks. Yes. Louis, thank you very much. Pleasure. Coming through. We Thanks appreciate so it. My pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having me. We're all big fans. Oh, nice to hear that. Great to be here. Louis Theroux out. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> this episode of North Mollywood was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, Kasia Mihailovic, and James T. Green for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts.